And uh, honestly, I'm going to have a hard time topping what just happened. So, uh, but since my name was used in vain with regard to the germ thing, uh, let me just say, uh, it's as much for your protection as mine, because a little known fact, I've spent two nights in Kirkland, Washington in the last two weeks. Yeah. But it was two weeks ago, so I think I'm good. But anyway, so I'm protecting you as much as I'm protecting me. I'm just telling no. It, I, it's, I will just say this. It's way too early to start deciding that the coronavirus is the beginning of Armageddon. I, I'm, I'm quite certain it's too early. So anyway, but glad you're here. Don't want to make light of it. I know it's causing a lot of pain for a lot of people, but uh, we want to keep a balance in here. But I want to start off today with something a little odd, something I don't usually do. We're going to look at a map uh, because it's really important to have context of, of what is happening in the story of Mark as you're learning about the gospel and learning about the story of Jesus. It's important to have context in our lives about what Jesus is asking us to do with our hopes and our fears and, and our anxieties and our faith and what kind of faith he's trying to grow in us uh, to see that context. And it starts with the context of uh, the actual geography of what's happened in this story. And, and it's, it starts off here, by the way, I'm going to use this laser pointer, and I've been told in the past not recently, but you know how you, you, when you use the laser pointer, you kind of, sh- it looks shaky on the top. So if you've got motion sickness problems, just close your eyes at this point. But here we go. So you got uh, the Sea of Galilee right here. Can you see that thing, that little light there? And, and Jesus last week took his disciples up to Tyre right there. It's on the seacoast. It was a Phoenician city. It was a very wealthy city. Several Greek philosophers, the father of of, uh, modern history, uh, Herodotus, was there. Uh, It was a very extremely wealthy city before the time of Jesus. In fact, there's an interesting thing I forgot to tell you, that um, uh, in, in Ezekiel 26, there's a prophecy against Tyre. There's about four or five things that are prophesied, and all of them happened in the 500 years before Jesus. In fact, part of that prophecy is that Tyre would be wiped off the map and that it would be only, uh, the, the only um, thing left would be just a rock. Everything would be just swept out. It would be just be wiped out. And uh, that happened after Jesus, uh, of course, because he was there and he, he'd met these people. But even today, you can go and you can see that, yep, it's just a rock. And it said that the people who tried to rebuild Tyre, uh, there would be a curse on it, and they, the curse would fall on them. It's just crazy stuff like that. So all I'm saying is just don't mess with the Old Testament prophets, really, man. I mean, it's just dangerous. But anyway, so you got Jesus brings his disciples to this crazy Gentile place, and they find out that there's this woman of faith that believes in Jesus, and he casts uh, the demon out of her daughter, but he does it remotely. He doesn't even see her. And and so that happens here. Then today we're going to see Jesus goes up here into Sidon, which is also a part of that that prophecy. Then he's going to come down here to a place where he's been before, to the corner of uh, the, the... uh, sea of Galilee and the place called the Decapolis. Deca meaning ten, polis meaning cities, ten cities. These were Greek cities. These were, these were Gentile cities that the Romans poured tons of money into. They didn't pour it into the Jewish people. And so this was, again, sort of a, 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 dis, uh, a dissonance place for the disciples. Uh, this is the place where Jesus uh, cast out the demons out of the man formerly known as Legion, okay? Remember that? A couple of chapters before. And as we said, we're going to deal with that kind of demonology in about uh, two, uh, a couple of months when we get to chapter 9, because Jesus gives us some specific things uh, to do about that. But so that's where they are today. And then they're going to make a, a trip up here to the corner of Magdala, which is uh, where uh, Mary Magdalene uh, was from. It's up in the northwest uh, corner, really the, the west side, the northern west side of the Sea of Galilee. But what I want you to see is Jesus has just sort of taken his group on a retreat, all right, but they went from here up to here, down to here, and back up to here. They made a circle, circling. Jesus is going in circles. It's sort of a metaphor for our lives sometimes, doesn't it? Feel like we're going in circles? I mean, you can draw a lot of circles. You can make a lot of circles. The circles could be a lot of different things and mean a lot of different things. They can mean that we're chasing our tail or what we would say today, spinning. You know, we just spin, 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 back to the same thing, back to the same thing, back to the same thing, the same temptation, the same worry, the same whatever. But really, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking Jesus is doing this because it's sort of like, what are you doing going to all these Gentile places? And is there a purpose to this? And what's the plan? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, for you and I, we have the the bird's eye view. We have the advantage of hindsight because we've got the gospel right in front of us. But these guys, this is all brand new to them. So we need to cut them some slack. 
But there's also a kind of circle that says, you know what, I'm going to draw a circle around my uh, worries, around my fears, around my faith, around my life, and I am going to say, Jesus, I'm going to have um, faith in you anyway, and I'm going to trust you anyway. I don't see it. I don't understand it, but I'm going to pray and I'm going to believe you until I do see it because I know that you see and understand you've got it all figured out, so that's what I'm going to do. And that's sort of the premise of a book I ran across uh, in 2011. In 2011, uh, a book came out called The Circle Maker by Mark Batterson, uh, who uh, is the pastor at National Church in Washington, D.C. And uh, it just really impressed me. It hit me at a time in my life when I really needed to hear the message. And, and uh, the circle maker starts off with a story from this book. It's called The Book of Legends. Uh, it's probably not one you're going to want to read before you go to bed. Uh, it's, it's all the legends from the uh, previous to Jesus uh, time on earth. It's all the legends from the Talmud and the Midrash of the Jewish uh, religious people, uh, or Jewish rabbis. They put uh, stories in there of people of great faith and all the information about the stories that were important to them that were legends. They're not scripture but they were legends of the time. And, and one of those stories is a guy by the name of Honey. And Honey was known as this sort of eccentric guy. He was sort of an eccentric sage. And, you know, he was one of those guys that would kind of wander through town and, and people would say, oh, get a load of him. Here he comes again. And he's just a crazy guy. But yeah, but he's a nice guy, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so there was this horrible drought around the city and uh, people were, you know, in danger for their lives. So Honey comes in the middle of town and he draws a circle in the dirt and he stands in the dirt, and he declares this prayer. I, I, I wrote it down here. He declares a prayer, Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy upon your children. And he just keeps praying and praying and praying. And at first, he's not even praying for rain. They have a little rain, but it's not enough. He says, okay, that's not enough. We need more. I'm praying for showers, for, for downpours, okay? And he just stays in the circle and stays in the circle, and pretty soon, you know, God answers his prayer. And because we were in a situation at that time, this is what was kind of eating at me, at least one of the things. I'll get to something else a little later in the message, but what was eating at me uh, in 2011, 2012, was what had been eating at me is, is this building and how we're going to pay for it and, and uh, what was going on. Because, see, there were some things being uh, uh, expected of us from the outside, not from the inside of the church, from the outside of the church that I didn't think were right and the way it was going on and so forth. And, and uh, I felt kind of alone in it because that was just me and these situations outside. I will just, just leave it at that. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to draw a circle. I'm going to do something that Batterson talks about. I'm going to circle the property. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I went to my home away from home, Home Depot, and I, I got these pavers. I got these rocks, okay? And I, I brought them home, and I said, Sharon, I can't explain why, but I'm going to ask you to just, your handwriting's better. Would you take this magic marker, and would you draw, uh, write uh, verses and, and passages of Scripture, not the whole thing, but just the reference, the, the, the address of that on here. And, and, and then I took these four rocks, and I placed them around the property. And then what I did is I circled the property, uh, and prayed every single day. I circled it seven times, actually, out the back here, down across the, uh, to the trail, across the creek, up on Sunnyside Road, down 142nd, back down Red Maple, did it seven times. Why seven times? I don't know. It seemed like the right thing to do. Joshua went around Jericho and seven times, and the walls fell down. I didn't want that to happen. Well, some days I did want that to happen, but... Um, <laughs> The reality is, is it was, you know, we were just kind of circling around, 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 and, and I was praying, and as I was doing that, I, I didn't let anybody know in the church, in leadership or anybody, that I was doing this. And so church people would drive by, and they'd go, hey, uh, Dwayne, how are you doing? It's good. What are you doing? And my answer was always, I'm just praying. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what a pastor does. That's good. Or one person rolled down there, just, what are you doing? Getting some exercise? Good for you. You know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, but I just kept this up for, for months, really. And prayed that God would resolve this problem, this situation. And it was a real, you know, brain buster and, uh, and heart buster in some ways. So I, I did that. And, and uh, one day, uh, the, our groundskeeper, who was a real great guy of faith, that came in, uh, at the, uh, the guy that was doing that at the time, and he came in and he says, hey, hey, I got to show you a picture. 
somebody's been putting scripture around, around the property. I've taken a picture on my phone and I've read this passage. I don't know what it means, but man, is it just cool? And I said, yeah, I, I put it there. And he goes, oh, and that was kind of the end of the conversation. I think I kind of blew his whole, you know, it was, it was, it was not very nice. And so anyway, you can still find these rocks, at least three of them, because one of them was in my office and this corner's uh, stone was in the office. And, and you can still find them out there, I think. They're still out there. So it's sort of like Dwayne's version of Pokemon Go. So you can give, just <laughs> see what you find. But, but here's the deal. As I wandered around and around and around and, and prayed and prayed and prayed, God never really answered it. I didn't understand why. Until he brought some people around my life and into my life and into leadership in this church in 2016. That was five years. He brought them into my life, and they were people who were able to stand with me. They had the knowledge to kind of help with this thing, and, and uh, we stood up to it, and, and, and God did an amazing thing. He didn't do exactly what I'd asked him to do, but he sure dealt things with things uh, in, in uh, a, a complete way with regard to uh, our mortgage and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's, in fact, why we are able to do this next generations thing, which we'll talk about in two weeks uh, starting in two weeks, the 22nd and the 29th. I encourage you to be here. I know it's spring break. I know, uh, I, you, you notice that I don't ask you to be here uh, just any old time, uh, but if you can all possibly make it, this would be the time to be here, okay? 22nd and 29th. Uh, we're going to talk about that, but, but this wouldn't have happened. This is evidence of what God did to answer those prayers is what I'm saying. Even though I still don't completely understand, even though I didn't understand in the midst of it, but I said, God, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for it. Anyway, it wasn't about me pulling his chain. It wasn't about me demanding anything. It wasn't about any of that. It was just him saying, okay, yeah, you just work this. And in the midst of it, he raised up my faith. See, I think that's what Mark is going to tell us in the three stories we're going to look at today. And frank, frankly, I never put these three stories together until I started stu studying them this week. That Mark uh, actually has a sort of a theme running through here about how people have faith in Jesus even when they don't understand everything, whether they do or they don't have faith in Jesus, and what it means, and why would Jesus do that? What's he trying to do by asking us to have faith without explaining everything to us, right? Because doesn't it feel like that? Have you ever had God explain everything to you? I know he hasn't because you wouldn't be here. Your brain would explode if he explained everything to you. Right? So, so here's the deal. Let's, let's start with the first story in uh, the last part of uh, Mark chapter 7. I'm going to start with, with uh, verse 31. It says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went to, through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought him a man who had, was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. And after he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Uh, that, that's, hard, that's hard to deal with right now, but anyway. <laughs> Jesus, I have faith in you on that. Okay. So verse 34, he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephethah, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. We talked about this. This is the messianic secret. We did a whole message on this on January 12th. He told them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. And he hastened, uh, he has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So what you need to understand, first of all, again, is that the Decapolis is pagan territory, or pagan for the Jews, Gentile territory. It's not Jewish territory. These, these disciples have been raised since they were knee-high to a grasshopper that non-Jewish people couldn't find God. And yet Jesus keeps going to these places. In fact, he keeps going to this place because he'd just been there in chapter 6. Remember that? And, and, and he'd cast the demon out. And, and apparently somebody remembered him because some people had enough faith to bring this, this, uh, uh, this man to them and, and that needed his eyes and his ears opened, or his, his mouth and his ears opened. And so Jesus does this miracle there. And, and uh, so, so there, there's this faith there, but what kind of faith is it? Well, we kind of get a clue to it when it says at the end, they'd say, say, you know, he's done everything well. Which, you know, that can, 
<laughs> what does that mean? What is, did something well? It can mean, good job, Jesus. Way to go. That kind of, you did a good job there. You know, but that's still the person, you know, kind of giving the compliment. It's just, is Jesus really looking for compliments? I don't think so. I think he's looking for mature faith, resilient faith. Not that we generate ourselves, but that we take the training from him. We'll see this as we go on. He's not just looking for compliments. You can, you can take this another way, too, because if you look up there, it says they were overwhelmed with amazement. Maybe some of these people were like, this is really great, but wait a minute, what's he going to ask for? What's the catch? When's another shoe going to drop? You ever have that, that feeling? Like, okay, something really great happens. They, okay, God, what are you going to do next? You know what that is? That's not faith. That's not scripture. That's superstition. But all, all of us do it, don't I mean, I'll admit to you, I've had that, like, I don't want to get too excited about this. Sort of like that little batch of sunshine we had a week ago. <laughs> right? Are you just blowing sunshine in our face, Jesus? You know, that kind of thing. And, 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 but some people were overwhelmed by it in that sense. But there was apparently some genuine faith. But what this indicates, and just about every miracle Jesus does in, uh, the, New in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Every single one of them and the people's reactions display something that we need to understand if we're going to grow mature, resilient faith. Because we've all got this situation too. And it's this. Our ability to interpret the signs of Jesus' presence in our lives is way overrated. In other words, by looking at the circumstances of our lives and trying to get to where is Jesus at work in my life, we stink at that. We, it's just too, too much. I mean, we, we, it, it, he's, too much, he's too far greater than we are. We need a lot of practice to get to that point. We need a lot of walking with Jesus to get to the point where our faith can believe him at a higher level and a higher level and a higher level, right? And to know that nothing that happens, even the things I can't get my brain around, I just can't understand why God would let this and that and happen and so forth, that's the, the, it takes, that kind of faith takes, you know, a, a long time of walking with Jesus. I think this is what the writer of Hebrews was trying to get at. We talked about this in the Resilient Christians class. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 5 tells us about that kind of faith. I remember the first time I read this, this was, I read it in this version, the New American Standard Version, and this, uh, this rocked my world back in high school, okay, because it I found myself in here. Here it goes, verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say that is concerning Jesus. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles and oracles of God. And you have come to need milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food, that is, you know, the, 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 high, the, the deeper things of God, is for the mature, mature in their faith, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, since we're circling, if you're a circler in your Bible, circle practice and trained or training. I, I, your version might just say training, by training. Circle those two words. Because what, what is this saying? It's saying something that happens, uh, it's giving an illustration of something that happens every, every day in the city. A lot, judging by the, uh, how crowded my gym gets sometime about the time I get there. It's practice. What's practice? It's repetition. So sometimes we find ourselves back at the same temptations. Sometimes we find ourselves back at the same anxieties. After Jesus has, you know, if we've walked with him, we've had some practice. Our faith has had practice. In fact, what's interesting is, is this word for census train, the word train is gymnos, gymnasium. That's what the Greek word is. That's where we get the word gymnasium, for working out. And working out faith. And, and that's why, you know, some people are amazed and freaked out. Some people are amazed and, and not overwhelmed. Some people are, you know, hey, that was really neat, but what was that kind of thing? And, and that, that's kind of where these people, we see all kinds of flavors of it here. But notice what happens with the disciples who have been walking with Jesus for a while. 
Let's look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. By the way, we, just to say it again since we're doing this twice, we're, we're splitting a verse today and we're splitting, uh, we're, we're jumping over a chapter. The chapter and verses of the Bible were not inspired. They weren't originally written in there. They've just been put in there about 400 AD, 500 AD, so we could find our way around, okay? Just to be clear. Verse 1 of chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, this is something the disciples say in the feeding of the 5,000, but Jesus gets ahead of him. He says it first. So you know that he's trying to do something with them. I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me uh, three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And his disciples answered, watch this answer. Where are we going in this remote place? Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. And he told the crowd, sit down in the ground, on the ground. And when they had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and distribute, to distribute to the people, and they did so. And they had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. And the people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken people, pieces. Well, that's not really a miracle because he had 12 before, 12 basketfuls. Broken pieces that were left over. And about 4,000 were present that day. So... Remember, he's just done it 5,000 people, which is more like seven or 10,000 people in a Jewish area. Now he does 4,000 people, or how many ever there were that brought probably, uh, you know, the men are counting heads. That's kind of how they w- did it that way in those days. But th- the point's not the number. The point is he's doing the exact same thing he just did a little while ago. And, and look at the response of the disciples. Their response is the exact same thing. Where are we going to find that kind of food? Right? It's like, uh, what was Jesus thinking? Have you ever noticed as we've gone through the gospel, maybe you thought about this, okay? And, and really, I thought about it when I put myself in their shoes. So I'm not ripping on them. This is the first time they didn't have Bible study uh, in the New Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. They didn't know how all this was going to turn out, so forth and so on. But we do. But I can see myself in them right here right? They keep doing the same thing in the same place, and it's really kind of dumb, really. Is there any children in here? I use the word dumb. It's, 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 it's a Greek word. But anyway, the, the, it's really kind of silly, it's like, but, but Jesus never goes, would you guys, okay, okay, okay. I'm starting over. Go home. This isn't going to work. You guys are hopeless. Go on. I'm going to get a new group. He never does that. He's patiently, okay, how many loaves do you have this time? This time you got seven. Ooh, look what I did with five. Look, I can do with this. Right? And so there's this, there's this sense of, hey, you know, um, just remember my presence. Interpret the present in the context of what you see me do in my presence in the past. Interpret the present through the presence you've seen in the past. The presence of Jesus. The kingdom of God being near, as he says in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Interpret it through that lens. Run it through that filter before you jump into the conclusion of, oh, what are we going to do? Right? That's what he's saying. It's it's sort of like this. I had a friend who had a study over his garage one time, and he had one of those circular metal staircases. What's interesting about that is you're going in circles there too, right? But when you come around to the place you were at, and four or five steps below, you're not at the same level. You're at a higher level. And I think that's what he's trying to do with their faith. That's what he tries to do with your faith and my faith. That so when we face the same thing, the same temptation, the same whatever, the same situation, or, or the, the, the same challenge, kinds of challenges we come up to, it, we're not dealing with it the same way. Why? Because we don't, have, we don't understand everything. We don't have everything all figured out, no. But we do know that he's been present in the past and that he's promised to be present in this situation in the future. And that's exactly what I think he's trying to ask us to do and what he's asking these people to do. You see, the point is, is that human nature... Our human nature, you've got it, I've got it, is to discount, you know, what we've seen before. 
Like if we see God do something in our lives or, 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 or take care of things in a way that, you know, we never could before, we come up to a similar situation, we say, well, that, that was then, this is now, right? You ever heard that one? I've heard that in my mind, you know? We've never done it that way, this, this way before, right? And it's sort of, it, 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 Jesus is trying to raise up, why? Because that kind of lower grade, hey, well done, Jesus, faith isn't enough to do what God wants to do. It's not enough to survive, our faith to survive going forward in life, no matter what age or what time that you live in. Resilient faith, deeper faith, is the kind of faith that learns from those experiences and lifts us up and, and has decided, you know, this is not an accident. Jesus is not just some randomly throwing darts at you and me. Hey, let's see if they can handle that. Let's see how, how about that one? Mm-mm, not doing it. He's he strategically, purposely, the New Testament is full of verses about this, that when he asks us to walk through stuff, or he's asking us to walk through it with him and to remember that in the present, what we're seeing is, is, is dealable, is conquerable, is you, you can apply your faith to it because you've seen what happens when you've done it with his presence being with you in the past. And that's what, he, what, what he's trying to teach these disciples, I believe. So that's what, what the, he's asking the disciples, but now he's about ready to go right back into the midst of the, the, the vipers, the den of, he called, Jesus calls them vipers, the den of lions, the Pharisees, the religious rulers. And man, they haven't been able to find Jesus because he's been in all these Gentile places, and boy, they're loaded. They're ready. They're kind of frustrated. They haven't been able to kind of vent what they've been trying to vent. And look at this, what happens. Halfway through verse 9. After he had sent them away, the crowd, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. So Dalmanutha is probably Magdala uh, up in the northwest shore where I showed you there. It's where Mary Magdalene's from, and we went there last summer. They've discovered where it was recently. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus and to test him, and they asked him for the sign from heaven. He sighed deeply. You know, in the Greek language, this means he groaned in his spirit. It was like, and the reason I tell you that is it explains what's about to happen. But also, because this is a word that's so rare, it only shows up here in the New Testament, and it only shows up like 30 times in all of Greek literature beyond, uh, that we have beyond uh, the New Testament. What does that mean? That means it's a pretty rare word, and that also means that probably the reason Mark puts it in there is that that's what Peter tells him he heard when Jesus responded to this. He groaned. It was like, okay. Because see, up to this point, Jesus has been pretty patient with these Pharisees when you think about it. He's tried to get them to see and tried to get them to come to faith. So he groaned, sighed deeply. Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed over to the other side. He just walked away. Have you noticed Jesus hasn't done that yet? This is the first time he walked away because he saw something that had just crossed the line. What was it he saw? Well, first of all, look at these words um, in um, verse 11 about how the Pharisees came to him. These are... These are not something you would notice in the English, so I'm just going to call them out because in the Greek language, we don't have words to contain all of what these words mean. That's why you've got the words you've got. For example, when it says the Pharisees came, it means they came out. There's action to the word. They came out. In other words, they came into his face, really. It's a military word. It's this, when, it, when a military army would come out with their swords and go, you know, and try to scare the other group. That's what this word was. That's what the word referred to. It's a military word. Secondly, question him. In other words, they were in his face. They were disputing with him. They were, you know, he couldn't get any word in edgewise, that kind of questioning. They had an agenda. It says they, they asked him. When it says they asked him, it doesn't just mean that um, uh, they, they asked, you know, oh, could you just answer our question and give him a chance to answer? No, this is, they were trying to control him is what the word means. They're trying to gain control over somebody. And finally, test. Testing him was that they were, they, were, they were trying to put a stumbling block in his way. 
That's what it means. Tempting or testing in this case is trying to get in the way of what God was doing, what Jesus was doing. Now, what's interesting is Jesus uses this exact same word against the devil when he quotes Old Testament scripture and says, uh, you shall not tempt the Lord your God or test the Lord your God. Remember that? In Matthew 4 and Luke uh, 4, when Jesus is out in the desert and the uh, devil's tempting him? Why? Because you don't get in the way of God's plans. You don't put your foot down and say, no, you don't do it that way, you must do it this way. Because when you do that, which is what these guys apparently were doing, you're putting yourself on the dark side and in this case, permanently. And that's why he walked away. Because it was, it was done now. It was over. He'd given as much grace. He'd given them as much uh, information as they possibly could. But they were demanding a sign. What does it mean by they were demanding a sign? Because, you know, Jesus says his cross is a sign. In a little while, we're going to see that his death is a sign. We're going to see that his, his resurrection, certainly, that's the greatest sign. We're going to deal with that and dig into that when we get it to Easter, right? in just a few weeks. But it's all a sign. Yeah, that's all a sign. But in this case, what the sign means is not just a sign, but it's a way of getting God to, you know, sort of yank his chain and get him to come down and prove it and do something empirical. They wanted empirical data. They wanted God to come down and drop the Ten Commandments right in front of their face and one of those Ten Commandments, add the Eleventh Commandment, this is my son, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is God, the God-man. That's what they wanted. And Jesus said, no, what you're asking for, that's not faith. That's trying to control God. That's trying to yank his chain. And the reality is, is that that's the little teeny weeny little God that is worthless. If we can just pull God's chain and get him to do whatever we want, that's not much of a God. And, you know, that's kind of the lie of the, our secular progressive culture right now. I mean, it, it's the lie of the new atheists. They're not so new anymore. They've been around for, you know, 20 years. So they're, and they're all pretty old. You know, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, he's younger. Dennett, Daniel Dennett. Um, all of them kind of bring up this lie of, you know, if God is really God, then why doesn't he show himself? Well, he has, but no, no, no. Show himself this way. You know, just like in science, we can prove stuff. Why doesn't God come and do that? Because he's greater than that. He's bigger than that. And if we have faith in him because we can understand everything, that makes us bigger than him. And that makes our faith worthless because it's not faith, it's just empirical data. And that's what these guys were asking for. That's what these guys were expecting to see. And that's why they demanded so strongly. What's the difference between that and, and Isaiah, or I mean, uh, Elijah asking for a sign when he's running from Jezebel and, and crying out in the, in the desert, say, God, kill me, God, kill me, God, kill me, please, because she wants to kill me. All the prophets are dead, now she wants to kill me too. And God said, no, no, come on. I got more for you to do. What's the difference between that and David's laments in the Psalms? What's the difference between that and Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? What's the difference between that and, and Paul asking, begging God three times to take away his thorn of the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12? What's the difference? The difference is, is that's not demanding God do anything. That's sort of walking the circle or drawing the circle and saying, God, I'm going to sit here until you do in me what you want to do in me and you deal with this situation the way you want to deal with it. These guys were demanding how God would deal with it. Just like, you know, the, the Roman pantheon, the, the silly little gods who did these silly little things because they were make-believe gods. That's what these guys were trying to make God out to be. You see, what I'm saying is, and what I think Jesus is teaching here, is that faith that understands everything is not faith at all. Now listen, listen to what I'm about to say, okay? I don't want to be misunderstood. That doesn't mean God hasn't given us myriads of information in his revelation. And shoot, in Romans 1, it tells us clearly that everybody can see in creation that there must be a God. Everybody's got enough information to get that far. What he's like and all that sort of thing, that's why he had to reveal himself in his son and in the scripture. But everybody's got it right in front of their face that there must be somebody out there. Theism, okay? Everybody's got enough for that. And, 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 and uh, that's really the realm of apologetics, the defense of the faith. Not, you know, I'm sorry, apologetics, but apologetics of defending the faith. That's God's apologetics is 
what we see every day, what we walk in and what we live in right before us. And that's because that's he loves us. He's drawing us, but that's not enough. That's not enough in this sense for deep, resilient, maturing faith. Because the reality is, is that God can't tell us everything so that we understand everything because if he did, it would kill us. It would scare us to death. And it's just, we're not capable of taking it all in. So this, this uh, pharisaical argument of our secular age that God should explain everything and come down here and if he's really God, you know, how, how silly it is, how foolish it is that you believe in that God. Uh, because, you know, we know what's right. We, we've seen it. We've done the science. We've done the rational. The, the extreme rationalism of our age is, in fact, pharisaical at its worst sense. It's exactly what Jesus is facing in this time, which should lift us up in our faith. And should lift us up in, in when we go through those things that we don't understand. It's where Paul was trying to go when he wrote a letter to some people who were living in a city where it was full of philosophers and people talking in the streets and, you know, on the street corner and making big uh, claims and, and teachings and so forth about what they, how, how they knew how the universe was working and, you know, and so forth and so on. And many of them were contradicting what Paul was teaching on those, some of those same street corners and some of those same um, houses and homes and so forth. It's, it's the letter to the first Corinthians. Letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, where he, where he describes how to live in a, a world like that. He says, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of the age? That's what we're talking about. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those, watch that, save those who believe. Believe like what, Paul? like this. Well, Jews demand a sign. We saw that. Greeks, that is Gentiles, look for wisdom. And, and in Paul's day, wisdom was sort of like the, looking through the, the microscope to try and figure out the, or, or doing the math equation to figure out the source of all being, you know, the, the center, the big bang, the, the God that I, Einstein was looking for, okay, that kind of thing. Wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And that message is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, so he is the wisdom of God, he is the center of all existence. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And that's all we, all, all we gotta know, he's saying. And Moses, he says, saving faith, the kind of faith that... Uh, saves us. And, and when the Bible talks about saving, especially in this context, it's not just talking about forgiving our sins, although it is talking about that, but it's also talking about what saves us today and tomorrow and the next day and transforms us and changes us and makes us like Jesus and helps us face those trials and helps us face the enemy and helps us face all of those kinds of things in our lives that we don't know what to do with and we don't fully understand them. He's not asking us to. He's simply asking us to have faith and that is the center and the nature of God's wisdom. The wisdom that created the world. That simply believes, that says, I don't understand it all, but I know you do, Jesus. So I'm going to believe anyway. And that kind of faith grows and grows and grows and lifts a person up. You see, saving faith in Jesus is ultimately beyond the empirical data of what God is up to. God is, he, his presence is here. He's up to something. But of course, we're not going to fully understand it, this side of eternity especially. Because if we did, it wouldn't be faith. Nothing wrong with apologetics. Everything right on apologetics. We're going to go off on apologetics in Easter. It's going to be fun. But the reality is, we need something more. And that's what Jesus is trying to bring us to as we walk along with him in the gospel and the disciples as they walk along with him in the gospel. You know, about that time I was circling the, <clears throat> right in the middle of that time I was circling the property. Another thing happened. I, I had prayed all my life since my early 20s that, that God would give me men friends that I could kind of grow old with. And, you know, uh, not that I didn't uh, like being married. I love being married to, to my friend. Uh, but, uh, and really, we were friends for two years before we got married. I was a slow mover, but also because uh, it was just, we just loved being together. So anyway, but I wanted to, so 
I'd seen some of this, you know, sort of some groups of guys who, you know, kind of stimulated each other's thinking and kind of walked with each other and were friends. And I'd prayed for that, and, and God has given me some. But he gave me one special friend in uh, 20, uh, 2007. And what was weird was this guy had become, uh, he was a, a, a prof and a teacher, and, and yet, you know, we, we, we're kind of at the same level, and uh, we, he, um, he had been connected to people that since I was an early Christian, they'd known him too, and he'd begin, our lives had kind of circled around each other, but we'd never met until this time. And God just kind of put it together, and, and neither one of us were real touchy-feely kind of people, and by the way, nothing wrong if you are, nothing wrong at all. I'm just saying we weren't, and uh, he came to me and, uh, uh, one time, or one time I, I went to his house, or his, because he lived in another city, so I was staying with him, and, and he said, you know what's weird about this, Dwayne, and this was early on, he said, he says, I, said I don't usually say this, I haven't said this, but it's kind of weird, but it's, things click with us. I said, yeah, they do. And he said, yeah, it's kind of like we're brothers, like we're, this was friendship was meant to be. I said, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's weird, isn't it? I'm, I'm not used to that, but it's, it's what I prayed for. And, and, and it was great. It was wonderful. But then in the middle of, uh, in July of 20, July 10th, actually, of 2014, I got an email. I started to check my emails just a little bit before I went home on a Friday afternoon. And there it was. He had died. Suddenly, unexpectedly, he had a heart condition. None of us knew his heart virtually exploded when he was out hiking in the mountains of Colorado. And uh, I, I didn't believe it, honestly, for a while. Uh, for, for a number of hours until I kind of got a hold of finally another friend of ours, a mutual friend, a friend of mine, a guy that I owe my spiritual life to, Larry Gadball. I said, is this true? Yeah, that's true. And then it, I went from that to what on earth, God, could possibly be right about this? What? I, I don't understand. I don't get it and so forth. I mean, I, I wasn't going to jettison my faith, but we were having some pretty hard conversations and I just didn't get it. And I, that went on for a while, for months. And then I finally came to the point where I said, you know what? I can't keep doing this. I can't keep crying every time I hear that certain praise song. I can't do this. I can't do that. But so Jesus, I don't know exactly what this means, but I don't understand why you did this, but I, I'm going to give it up to you. Uh, and I am going to believe you no matter what. And I, honestly, I still don't understand why God did that. But at that moment, all of a sudden, things began to turn. All of a sudden, there was this peace that was beyond the understanding that started to come. All of a sudden, there was a sense of, hey, you know what? He's not gone. I'm going to see him again. And it got, you know, remember we sang that song, Another in the Fire, where it says the space that's wearing thin? The space started to wear thin. And it was about that time that uh, it was a year later when I uh, uh, was down in L.A. and they had lived in L.A. the last couple of years of his life. <clears throat> and uh, his wife was still living down in, uh, in a suburb of L.A. And so I, I uh, went to, uh, we went to lunch together and I said, so how are you doing? She says, you know, I'm doing okay. I mean, I still miss him and I'll always miss him. I said, well, you wouldn't want to not to. And she said, yeah, that's right. But she says, I feel like he's closer to me. That, he, that he's still here in many ways. I said, you mean the, the veil is kind of thin? She said, yeah. Because you see, Sharon had kind of, as I talked to her, she said, well, you know, if we believe what the Scripture says in the New Testament, it's not that far distant between here and there. And Chris and I had talked about that a lot. There's this friend of mine. And, and he, 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 she, she, goes, she said, that's exactly what it is. It's the veil is thin. And it began to dawn on me what I need to continually remind myself of, because I'm not any uh, better than anybody else at remembering this, that the kind of faith that believes when you don't understand, when you don't fully understand, but when you don't understand at all, that's the kind of faith that Jesus says, now we're talking, now we can do some serious damage against the kingdom of darkness. Because you know what the devil does? He is so repetitive. He is so boringly repetitive. It's painful sometimes. He does horrendous things, especially when you live in a culture of death like we live in and the ideologies that fly around, and the temptations that come our way. But have you noticed how the devil thinks he's got it all figured out? Okay, I got him now. I got Jesus in the grave. Oh, rats. He thinks he's got it. Oh, I've got so-and-so down on that temptation, they're never coming back. Oh, how did how'd they come back? It comes back around to the same old, same old thing. But what he doesn't realize is that if we've grown on our faith, we're, 
We've got a stronger faith. We've got a stronger sense of his presence beyond that. That's how it works that it does this damage against the kingdom of darkness. See, that's how we see what really is. It's through faith like that. Not through faith that's got an explanation for everything, but through faith that believes anyway. That's how we see who Jesus really is. And that's why he was so strong against the Pharisees and so working so hard with his disciples and even trying to explain why those people that he had healed and helped, why they needed to grow up some more. You see, C.S. Lewis has a famous quote about this kind of faith. He says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's the kind of faith that he's talking about. Now, we're going to pick up this theme a little bit more about, you know, being a hospitable place for the presence of God and for the people who need their lives touched with that kind of faith in two weeks. And again, I encourage you to be here. But, but for now, just remember the promise in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 4 about what the results are of this kind of faith that believes beyond understanding. Not, not, not that we're chasing ignorance, but not expecting God to explain everything. Look at this. He says, the Lord is at hand. The veil is thin. The space between is not so wide. The kingdom of God is near, that Jesus said chapter one. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, Jesus, how do we do that in an age of anxiety and outrage? I mean, the two leading emotions today, anxious and outrageous. Well, here's how. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, so there's a sense of gratitude in our prayer, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what we're all looking for anyway? So let me just say, as we go to communion today, maybe you want to say that as your prayer. Lord Jesus, show me this peace that passes understanding. And when need to, put it in the face of the devil, Lord. Not me, you put it in the face of the devil. And whatever it is that you're wrestling with or struggling with, maybe just as you go to communion today, say, Lord Jesus, I know that you've died for sin. You've broken the back of evil. I know that you've risen from the dead to, to beat its biggest, our biggest enemy, death. And so, Lord Jesus, would you, I don't understand why I'm going through this, why I'm being tempted, why I'm having this situation, why I'm having that situation, I don't understand. But I know that you do, and for now, that's enough. I'm gonna believe you anyway. Would you take it, just take it, like you took all my sin and took it up, put it on the cross. That, I think, is what it's about. So let's pray as we do. Lord Jesus, I do pray that you would take whatever anxieties, struggles, difficulties we have, and Show us how the peace that passes understanding can really surround and inhabit and completely infuse our hearts and our minds beyond the understanding. We're not looking to be um, mindless Christians. We're not looking to ignore your word. We're not looking for a magic bullet or a special button that we can push when we're feeling bad. We just want to know you. We want to have the kind of mature, resilient faith that will not break, even if we have to bend from time to time. Thank you for what this time together in communion means too, that you've made it all possible by breaking the back, by breaking the power of sin and death. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here and being all of this for us. It's in your name that we pray, amen. If you're uh, here with us today and you're not sure what communion is or why, this is the perfect place to be because nobody will look strangely at you for staying in your seat. But gluten-free is over here. Let's, again, take the elements and bring them back to your seat. And if you need somebody to get them for you, that's fine. And then I'll come back and we'll take them together.
Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Thank you, Jesus. And then he took the cup, the wine, and he said, this is my blood or my life that I'm giving for you to fill you with. Drink it and remember me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here right now in our lives that changes everything in the present. And Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice of your body and your blood for us so that we could have new wine of faith that changes everything for us, regardless of understanding, regardless of what's going on in the world, that you can raise us up like you raised up those first disciples, that you can raise up our church, our lives, our families. We ask for that. We thank you that you are pleased that we ask for that. We love you, Jesus, because you loved us first. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing about that new wine together as a prayer as we close our service.